This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS. Politics, the United States. This week, Simon Says, legendary political columnist Roger Simon of Politico, joins us for a candid look at the Obama White House and the 2012 campaign. The secret behind his Bill Daly unplugged interview, his insights into the Herman Cain phenomenon, and a personal reflection on the illness that nearly took his life and left him in a wheelchair. Then, the man behind the digital curtain at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Nick Shaper, joins the conversation, the polyoptics promise of digital and social media. I am joined, as always, by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. Josh, it's great to have you here. Great to be with you, Adam. Certainly a very busy week on the polyoptic front. Door-to-door news coverage, Herman Cain. Herman Cain has gone from being the flavor of the month to everybody's punching bag, but he's also fallen into one of the polyoptics traps that... uh, uh, a candidate and even a president can fall into, Josh, he wasn't prepared uh, when it came to crisis communication. That's right. I, apparently he had about 10 days notice that, that allegations, uh, that prior allegations about sexual harassment would come up and obviously caught flat-footed. You and I have talked a lot about this, Adam. I'm not sure that it matters much, and I'm not sure that Herman Cain is that bothered by it. I'm not sure that whatever the effect on his campaign from these allegations, as long as it sells books for Herman Cain and raises his his awareness, is probably seen as a net positive by him. Well, that uh, that all goes to whether or not you believe he's really just on an extended bu- uh, book tour, or if he's actually seeking the presidency of the United States. I was walking to work on Monday and uh, found Herman Cain at the American Enterprise Institute. But that afternoon, he was finally speaking publicly about these allegations of sexual harassment uh, during his tenure atop the National Restaurant Association. Um, And here's what he had to say right off the bat, Josh. I would be delighted to clear the air. (laughs) Number one. In all of my over 40 years of business experience, running businesses and corporations, I have never sexually harassed anyone. It's almost like uh, Bill Clinton definitively saying he never had sexual relations with that woman, Josh. The word never was there, and once the story's out, you've got to stick to it. You should have had your, your, your story straight. But just the next day, here's what he had to say. As I recalled what happened 12 years ago, I recalled an agreement. I wasn't thinking legal settlement. And so the words have been flyspecked, and I do recall an agreement. I recalled, as I thought went through today, that there was an agreement. Okay, Josh, there, there was an agreement, but what was the agreement about? Well, the agreement was for a legal settlement. I a mean, legal settlement the, uh, for what? <laughs> for sexual harassment. But I've and never that, sexually harassed anybody. Uh, and that's what John Stewart and Stephen Colbert and the rest of the late night hosts are having such a great time with. But again, Adam, it doesn't matter that much because a guy with a single campaign staffer and zero 
operations on the ground is not going to get by primaries and caucuses where turnout matters. So we've been having this sort of fun, frivolous, fluffy conversation about the Republican presidential candidates throughout the summer and into the fall with the debates that we've been having. But they've only served to leaven these candidates who aren't really going to be nominated by the Republican Party to face President Obama next year. So it's been fun, but to what end? Well, I can appreciate everything you've just said, and I I have a sneaking suspicion that you're absolutely correct. But for those who are watching a candidate who has deep pockets, whose quarterly fundraising goals are being met and exceeded, Rick Perry didn't disappoint with an opportunity to disappoint this week. This is such a cool state. I mean, come on, live free or die. I mean, you know, you got to love that, right? I come, I come from a state, you know, where um, they had this little place called the Alamo, and they declared victory or death. You know, we're kind of into those slogans, man. It's like live free or die, victory or death. Bring it. Okay, so he's up in Manchester, New Hampshire, and people thought he was drunk, Josh. And that's what has been widely uh, reported, but uh, and and pushed back on by the Perry campaign. Look, I I take him at his word, and I think he was just having fun on a Friday night in in Manchester, New ha- in New Hampshire. But I did look ahead to a year and a half. I said, what if a President Obama was speaking to a an audience in the East Room and saying, "This is such a cool East Room." I mean, these slogans they have "E pluribus unum." I mean, this was is just not the kind of uh, guy who I think was uh, applying a presidential stature even on a Friday night in New Hampshire. I'll tell you what, for any polyoptic staffers who are uh, attending or, or, or a part of these teams, it's about time to commit Harry Carey because polyoptics isn't just what you can produce. It's as much about what the candidate gives off and, and what he shows and shares of his character or hers. And in that regard, it's been one of those weeks where we've seen, by contrast, uh, a president who's been picking up that mantle, Josh. That's right. I mean, we, we saw the beginnings of it uh, way back when he went um, out to the Ohio River and the bridge uh, spanning Kentucky and Ohio, uh, built himself a pretty good backdrop, aligned the photographers just so to get him in front of some failing infrastructure, uh, flew out to Las Vegas and did another sort of very Reagan-esque uh, moment in front of a, a housing uh in front of some housing out in Las Vegas to talk about people uh, underwater and their mortgages. And just before he headed off to Europe for the G20, went out to the Francis Scott Key Bridge, talking about infrastructure and invoking one of his predecessors. If you don't want to take my word for it, take it from one of my predecessors. It's one of the previous presidents. He said that, and I'm quoting here, the bridges and highways we fail to repair today will have to be rebuilt tomorrow at many times the cost. He went on to say that rebuilding our infrastructure is common sense. That's a quote. And, quote, an investment in tomorrow that we must make today. That president was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan indeed, Joshua. Yep, and then he gets on Air Force One, flies to Europe for what really is an in-and-out summit, really a class photo of the G20 before he's back in the plane and heading back here. But 
Adam, we, we've watched closely. President Obama had a pretty rough spring and summer. Uh, I think he's beginning to turn the corner a little bit here, realizing what's going to be required to win on the polyoptic front in the 2012 campaign. And we've seen a little bit of it this week. We certainly want to see more of it. Oh, I completely agree with you. Uh, and if, if you're listening to us here on POTUS, as you always are here at Polyoptics uh, on the weekend, you heard it from Josh King, and I, I completely concur. The President of the United States is getting his mojo back a bit, and uh, you're starting to see it uh, play out day by day. But one person uh, who I'm very excited to say we have on our show today, uh, one of the top reporters and columnists in Washington, a man who has covered all of the presidents and campaigns we have been talking about before the Reagan administration and obviously up to today is Roger Simon. Uh, Josh, it's pretty exciting to have him on the broadcast. Well, Adam, Roger Simon is a reporter's reporter, and he's been making a lot of news lately. The chief political columnist for Politico, he recently sat down with White House Chief of Staff Bill Daley and let his fellow Chicagoan riff aloud for about 60 minutes with the digicorder picking up it all. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Uh, you know, Daly didn't spare the expletives. Roger blanked them out in his reporting, or the candor. And when Simon's stories appeared online, the headlines started humming. And, you know, Simon's been getting these kind of scoops since 1975, when he started at the Chicago Sun-Times. And in the 35 years since, he's won a trophy case full of awards through stints that include the Baltimore Sun, Bloomberg... U.S. News and World Report. He's the author of four books, including one about me, sort of. <laughs> the, the Chicago Tribune as White House correspondent during the Lewinsky scandal and his current home, Politico, which has redefined and keeps redefining how politics is covered in America. So it's at Politico that Simon scored one of his earlier coups of the current administration, an Oval Office interview with President Obama, which we'll ask him about in a moment. But it's also the perch from which he got Bill Daly to spill at least some of his guts. So, Roger, welcome to Polyoptics. Now, Bill Daly is a pretty press-shy guy, at least compared to his predecessor. Why did he open up to you, and what were the big takeaways from that conversation? Um, you know, that's an interesting question. And uh, there was one Chicago uh, report that began by saying, you know, Bill Daly called Roger Simon in and unloaded on Rahm Emanuel. Well, it didn't quite happen that way. He didn't call me in. I put in a request for an interview and, and got it after a couple of tries. Um, and we talked for a long time. An hour is a long time to sit down with anybody in the White House. And, you know, we've known each other for 30 years, but we're not pals. I just happened to grow up in Chicago. And uh, Daly and I are, uh, Bill Daly and I are the same age. But, you know, the first 15 minutes of the tape, and I transcribed it, um, are basically unusable because they're so dull. I, I made the mistake of asking him, describe your usual day to me. And he went on about all the, it was an alphabet soup of, you know, you know DSS, NEC, this and this and this and that and all the meetings he has, and my life was flashing before my eyes, thinking this is going to be the worst interview I've ever done. Is that when you made the, the beeline for the bar in the, uh, in, the, in the chief's office, Roger? <laughs> you know, that's a, another funny thing you should ask. I, I went on John King a, after that interview, and John, King's, uh, John King of CNN, 
And his first question was, were you and Bill Bailey drinking? <laughs> I said, no. We were. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and we were both stone sober. So how did it turn colorful? You know, you just ask a lot of questions. And basically, when you're at the level of Bill Bailey, you're not going to get suckered into something or trapped into something. You're going to talk if you want to talk. I mean, he's been interviewed a lot in his lifetime. And I guess he just wanted to talk. Um, we, I said at the beginning, the first thing he said to me, I, I put a tape recorder, digital recorder, down between us. Uh, I don't think I've ever recorded an interview with Bill Daly before, but it's the White House, and you want to get every syllable right. And he said, is this on the record? And I said, yes, I would like it to be on the record. If you want to go off the record, just say so, and I'll leave that part of the tape out. He never went off the record for the next hour. So he knew the rules of the game. He knew what he was saying. I don't think it was his intention to make news that day, but it turns out he did. It's unbelievable that uh, in this day and age uh, you can attend not to commit news and then there you are with Roger Simon and you get a little too cozy and, and you've done it. Uh, but you've covered a lot of White House Chiefs of Staff at this point. We had Josh Bolton mm-hmm. on the show a few weeks ago. You've spoke with Panetta, Bowles, Podesta, Card, Bolton, Emanuel, and of course now Daly as we're talking. Is there a, a consistent thread uh, here that uh, creates either success or failure in that job from your opinion? The jobs are all different because they're defined by the president. Uh, the chief of staff does what the president wants him to do. Um, the role used to be, I mean, the job officially used to be called the president's secretary. And it, it dates back more than 100 years now. Um, and it was called the president's secretary because the sole job was to determine who got into the Oval Office to see the president. And that still, to a great extent, is what the chief of staff does. But it is the nature of the president himself to decide, first of all, whether intimates on his staff can go around the chief of staff. And there are certainly intimates on the Obama staff who can, who are closer to, I should say, President Obama than Bill Daley is. Um, And every president has been like that. I remember when I was at Harvard on a, on a fellowship, Kennedy Fellowship, um, Andy Card came up, chief of staff to uh, George W. Bush. And a student asked him, can Carl Rove go into the Oval Office without asking you? And Card, who is a very pleasant and charming guy, can be, almost grew enraged at this. Not at the question, but at the point, And said in a very harsh tone, Nobody gets to see the president without going through me. Well, I'm not sure if Karl Rove really had to go through Andy Card to get to George W. Bush, but those kind of things uh, are can be a sore point in any White House. The other now, obviously, Bill Daley's role and the role of of some other chiefs of staff have grown. Uh, Bill Daley very proudly told me that he was the only civilian non-intelligence, non-security person who was in every meeting uh, of the planning of the raid on Osama bin Laden. And obviously, he was there to give the president advice 
on, on this critical decision. And I ask Daly if he routinely gives advice on foreign policy. And he says, when the president asks me to, I do. Um, you know, I, I saw Daly about a year ago at a party. And um, I said, you know, it, it's just amazing that you're, you're doing this stuff, that, you know, this kid from Chicago is now talking about national security to the president. He said, yeah, it amazes me, too. Roger, to, just to pick up on that point, in your first piece that you wrote about Daly, you were pretty. You spent a, about a paragraph pointing out that iconic photo of the Situation Room when o Osama bin Laden is being taken out. Yes. And uh, because our show is called Polyoptics, and we are we hone in on the imagery of of the picture, you spent about a paragraph talking about how he looked as starched and buttoned down as he would at 10 a.m. on a Wednesday rather than uh, everyone with their sleeves rolled up on the weekend, which everyone else in the sit-room was. What was your impression about why Daly got so well-dressed that day? This is what he is. Um, uh, how we dress, how we present ourselves to the public is very important to us, to the individual. And when we dress in the morning or dress to go out in the evening, we make either a conscious or unconscious decision about how visually we will be seen by the rest of the world. And I made the point that while some people think Daly's dress, usually blue pinstripe suits, white shirts, conservative ties, makes him seem stiff or stuffy, in fact, he's neither one. He dresses like his father, Richard J. Daly dressed, which is carefully, expensively, properly. Um, and I made the point that Daly, uh, uh, in his law office in Chicago, when I interviewed him once years ago, had a very prominent, authentic sign from 1915 that said, you know, um, now hiring, no Irish need apply. That sign meant a lot to Daly, and that visual cue that he kept in his law office was to tell people something, and it was to tell them Daly and his brothers and his father remembers where they came from and remember and know where they have gotten to. And all those visual cues from our dress to what we have on our office walls are all extremely important, not only to us, but the kind of image and power we present to the public. Uh, Roger, let's turn the, uh, the the subject a little bit back to your, your native Chicago. And I was wondering if you'd share with us what uh, your friends are telling you about now Mayor Emanuel and how he's doing now that he's back home. Uh, what are you hearing about uh, how he's reacting both to your reporting and the picture uh, you know, of his tenure that's been painted most recently in Ron Suskin's book, uh, Confidence Men? Well, he's only been in office for a few months. Um, so it's a little hard to judge. I do know from people in Chicago, I have not talked to, to the mayor, to Rahm, um, but that if you're a union member, especially a teacher's union member, you don't like him very much. But I also hear from ordinary citizens that he's actually quite popular. Um, but it is far too early to decide whether uh, he is going to be a successful mayor or not.
After after writing Showtime, Roger, in uh, uh, covering Bill Clinton's 1996 win over Bob Dole, you went into the White House, now serving as the chief uh, White House correspondent for the Chicago Tribune, to cover Clinton's second term from the inside. It was a different perspective, I think, than you probably had before. How was Clinton the president different from Clinton the campaigner? And obviously, shortly after uh, his first year of the second term, 97, things changed completely in 98. But what was that experience like for you as the, at the end of a second term president? Well, I was hired uh, at the beginning of 1998. I started in January to do long, thoughtful pieces on the role and nature of the presidency in American life and dealing also with the optics of being a president. And the first weekend I started was a cold Saturday morning. And I remember standing outside with a few reporters and the pool about a block from the White House, downstairs from a law office, and we had no idea why President Clinton was upstairs at this law office. All we knew was that we were freezing our butts off. And in fact, he was giving a deposition. And it was the beginning of the entire year of Lewinsky. And instead of doing long, thoughtful pieces on the role of the presidency, uh, I did literally hundreds. I think I did more than 200 pieces, someone told me, 165 of which were on the front page, all about Monica Lewinsky. And uh, I think, like most reporters that year, I, I grew to hate it. And the editor of the Sun-Times at that time was Anne-Marie Lipinski, who also hated the story. And she hated uh, kids and parents having to talk about what the president was accused of and what he did and what it meant. And she would routinely order the stories off page one. And the Tribune would routinely get inundated with phone calls and emails saying, why are you covering up for this president? We and she would have to put them back on page one. But it was a single-story year, and it was a burnout year for, I think, almost everybody on the beat. I mean, many continued on, but there were only two or three reporters who had real inside sources on this thing, and the rest of us just scrambled for the entire year. I had one you know, good interview with Mike McCurry in which he slipped and committed news, and that again I was asked if McCurry and I had been drinking when that story broke. But aside from that, it was just all the day by day. You would do six stories a week, Monday through Saturday, and then for Sunday you would just sort of summarize the previous six days' stories and do a big deal Sunday story. And that was your life. Despite what you might think, uh, getting together with Roger uh, Simon is a BYOB opportunity, apparently. Um, and I can tell you, uh, having been lucky enough uh, as a young and up-and-coming journalist in Washington, D.C., to be working with you in that uh, Tribune newsroom here in Washington, D.C., and it was it was in constant motion seven days a week, as I recall, uh, back then. And, and the only relief from that story was the fact that Bill Clinton wanted to get out of town as much as possible. So we did eight foreign trips. 
Yep, well, uh, that was fantastic. that kept Josh King very busy. <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, but I, I want to bring people up to speed because the last couple of years have been particularly challenging while you've uh, been dealing with things on the personal front. And you reemerged in the middle of, of, of 2010, uh, thanks to David Axelrod. Uh, you landed this exclusive Oval Office interview with the president. Um, and I think that was a point where people understood, wait, hold on a second, something has, has changed. There's uh, a very specific update with regard uh, to your life. You were wheeled into the Oval Office for this uh, interview with the president, but you've always been this kind of boys on the bus, uh, going everywhere, covering the news where it happens. What slowed you down? And talk a little bit about what's been going on with you over the last year and a half. Sure. Just about two years ago, or two years and two weeks ago, um, I got sick. I caught an infection. We don't know from uh, something I ate or something I breathed, whatever. And I got septicemia. Um, septic shock, blood poisoning, which is a uh, a very dread infection. I think uh, only forty percent of the people survive it mm. um, because it's so fast moving. It's carried by your bloodstream. And um, uh, I, uh, to, to make a long story shorter, unless you want want me to make it a long story, my right leg was amputated below the knee, and my left leg was uh, amputated, uh, part of my ankle and my foot were amputated on the left side. I am officially a bilateral BK, which means on both legs I was at a below-the-knee amputation. And it took me about seven months uh, to get over that. Um, I was in a coma for, I think, six or seven weeks, and then you have to go through rehabilitation, and as you noted, um, and just a small thing to point out, I wasn't wheeled in, you wheeled yourself. Office, I wheeled myself in, but uh, but it is difficult over carpeting. I will tell you. Uh, and now I have legs. I have prosthetic legs. But uh, Department of Full Disclosure, and I've written about it anyway. When I was uh, sick and in the hospital, um, and uh, obviously out of the coma, uh, I did get a, a call one day, and the phone was not reachable from my bed, uh, and a nurse answered, and I heard her say. Um, uh, is it really? And yes, I'll put him on if it's really. And she handed me the phone, and I heard a voice saying, the President of the United States is uh, holding on for you. Would you like to speak to him? And I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and he called, and it was, I mean, it was a very nice two-minute phone call saying, I'm very sorry you're ill. We're looking forward to the day you're coming back, and et cetera, et cetera. And I, I thanked him very warmly, and and it made me a big deal on the ward. I got much better treatment. But uh, after that, um, I saw David Axelrod at a party uh, months after that when I was on my, well, not on my own two feet. I was in a wheelchair. And um, I said to him, I've known him also for decades. I, I knew him when he was a reporter at the Chicago Tribune. All you Chicago guys. I know. And my wife, actually, when she was a reporter at the Chicago Sun-Times, competed against him to cover the Jane Byrne mayoral race. She covered uh, Jane Byrne for the Sun-Times, and Axelrod covered her for the Tribune. Anyway, so I see Axelrod, and he's saying, hey, you're looking great. I'm glad to see you're getting out. You know, you're out of the hospital, and soon you'll be walking. And I said, thanks very much. Look, I'd like to make my first column back an interview with the president. 
And I have to tell people, this is what's called exploiting your friends. I, you know what? You have you have you did an interview with Politico where you talked about this issue of pity, quote unquote. Yeah. But you're so funny and so self assured that you know your your ability to sort of use your circumstance to your advantage with people who obviously know and love you, have a reputation and long history with them. But you have you have made it work. Well, I, I, thank you. But what is Axelrod supposed to say? He's looking down at a guy. <laughs> with no legs, sitting in a wheelchair that he's known for 30 years. And I say, by the way, could you get me the president? And Axelrod at first gave the standard safe programmed quote, which is, I'll see what I can do. And then immediately said, I'm going to make it happen. And that was very nice of him. And, um, you know, he made it happen. And, um, you know, the interview uh, followed, and uh, the president, uh, when, uh, you know, there's a, always a transcriber there and all the rest. And, but after it was over, uh, the president said to me, the next time I see you is going to be at the holiday party, and you're going to be walking. And it was true. It was at the holiday party. I was walking then with a cane. I don't use a cane now. But you have to walk about, oh, 20 feet to get from the doorway to where the president and first lady are standing so you can have your picture taken with them and all i could think of was i really hope i don't fall over and i didn't and <laughs> they were both very nice so roger the the columns that you've written for so long have this deep human touch to them and there's so many that have moved me that i've emailed you about when you've done them especially that july 4th column and i wonder if since you've recovered from your illness and you're back on your feet one uh, whether your sort of style of reporting has changed, your tone or your outlook has changed. Has, has anything resulted that makes Simon a different kind of reporter or columnist than he was before this? That's a really good question. My off-the-cuff answer would be, I can't think of anything that would have changed it. Um, certainly, my life has changed, but I also have to honestly say that... Um, when I look back at what happened to me, it is no worse than an inconvenience uh, and not, as it turned out, a, a tragedy. Um, there's nothing I did before that I can't do now. I walk, I climb stairs, I drive cars, everything. Roger, uh, your book in 1988, uh, the, the road show on the 88 campaign, had the subtitle, In America, Anyone Can Run for President. It's one of the risks we take. It, it, it just begs the question, is that what we're seeing right now in Herman Cain, and what's your take on that? Uh, I think, in some respect, along the way, some very good presidents who have striven for a Striven, is that a word? Strived, strove, striven. Was it over when the Germans bombed <laughs> Pearl Harbor? He's on a roll. I think, um, I, I'm speaking of Bill Clinton, who I think was a good president, uh, but was very conscious of keeping a common touch. The whole man from Hope thing was uh, an attempt to make him seem a down-home Arkansas boy, not this graduate of, of, of Georgetown, uh, Yale Law and uh, Oxford, and although I think he was and is extremely bright, he was careful to disguise it sometimes, and I think he made the job look easy, to tell you the truth, and I think people always go back to his first race 
1992, when George H.W. Bush was the incumbent president, uh, just so far ahead in the polls that no one, a lot of Democrats, just who had run in 1988, were afraid to run against him in 92. And here Bill Clinton had the guts to do it, and he wins. And now everyone says, you know, I'm not going to wait, because someone else is going to sneak in there. And now, you know, with all the debates that are going on, all you have to have is a ticket on Southwest and a clean shirt, and you can do without the clean shirt if necessary to stay in this campaign. (laughs) A lack of money, a lack of polling support, a lack of real support, a lack of organization is not making people drop out because the debates, which really are media constructs now, they're just billboards that the media can put their names on behind where the candidates stand. They are keeping the candidates in this race. And we're seeing people who would have been dismissed as political exotics now staying in, and in the case of Herman Cain, still the front runner. Roger Simon, we are glad that you are back on both feet moving around covering this campaign because your voice is so important to the discourse because I think you're right. When we wake up and see uh, our headlines dominated by a guy who basically has to his campaign a cigarette-smoking chief of staff and a book, uh, we're missing something real here and we're missing the kind of reporting that... uh, that David Broder did, that Roger Simon uh, has done and is continuing to do, and we hope we only see more of it in the months and uh, year to come. Thank you. You both are very kind. I just want to end with one qu- another quote by Adlai Stevenson. Your public servants serve you right. Let's all keep that in mind. Thank you, Roger. Be well. Thank you, guys. Roger Simon is a prerequisite if you're a serious politico, but uh, that he is now active on the Twitters, Josh, gives me great pleasure. That's right. I mean, he's a guy who started in the trade in 1975, and today he's tweeting on the hour. I mean, this is a person who is uh, very much evolved with the times, and if you're writing for Politico and you are very much of the discourse that's going on in Washington today right now, you've got to be involved in social media. Roger is, and so is Nick Schaefer. That's right. Nick Schaefer is the uh, executive director of digital strategic communications for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. You should see his business card. It's bigger than his wallet. Um, (laughs) But uh, he is uh, a leader and a communicator here in Washington, D.C. He hails previously before the chamber from uh, Speaker Boehner's office. And the reality for Nick is that he's come out of government and is working in the communications realm uh, at the at the substantive and policy level, working for pro-business solutions over at the chamber uh, to what ails this country. But really, you lead um, a great deal of uh, digital innovation and communications and a lot of polyoptics. And so with that introduction, I welcome you to the show, Nick. Thanks. I appreciate that. Glad to be here, guys. Uh, one of the things I think is most interesting about what you do is that there are uh, people who play this role uh, and, and I don't mean in a small ball kind of way, but within different offices on the Hill, um, within caucuses, uh, within campaigns. And yet the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is uh, to say that it's a formidable entity is an understatement, incredibly well funded, very disciplined, very well organized. 
Um, and so you're bringing these best practices of political communication, a lot of which pays attention to polyoptics, uh, from the Hill. What's going on over at the Chamber, and, and what made that such a, an interesting change of venue for you? I, it's interesting, but I think it was a pretty logical jump, actually. I, I see a lot of similarities in what's going on in the business community right now and what's going on in the Hill and what I do. I uh, got to the Hill about eight years ago at a really, really cool time in 2003 in the sort of heady frontier days of social media when members were really starting to care a lot about uh, things like web video, mass emails, uh, you know, Facebook wasn't even really part of the conversation yet. But um, And so I got to see that evolve, and we learned a lot along the way. Um, got to see a lot of good things happen, got to learn a lot of other lessons uh, the hard way. But uh, I see that happening on K Street. Uh, for the last few years as well, and I see them finding new ways to communicate and represent their members and uh, get their message you know, back and forth to the Hill, which is really sort of a symbiotic process that I've seen as the Hill continues to open up and use social more. Um, you know, advocacy groups like the Chamber and folks that, that uh, represent you know, all manners of business should be right there on those platforms and uh, with their message. You know, I was explaining to Josh uh, earlier today in, in, in anticipation of this conversation that one of the things that you all are doing that others will ultimately be getting into, I think, in this 2012 campaign is using the Twitter social media channel in a more proactive way, putting money against its sponsored tweets, which is really a way to drive people to a place, if you have it, mm -hmm. that's full of content. This is something that's just starting to happen. This was not even in existence right. but a few months ago. Mm -hmm. But you guys are pioneering. There's no other advocacy group in the nation that's doing this quite we, yet. We were the first, and you'll see a lot of the campaigns, I think, ramping up as we get closer to 2012. But we were the first big player uh, on Twitter's new ad platform, and it's it's been a great experience for us. You know, we had maybe 5,000 followers and six months ago, up to 50,000 now. And, uh, you know, more than just numbers, I'm really happy with... The sort of targeting that you get from platforms like that and Facebook and other tools that we've got right now to make sure that, you know, big numbers don't always equal big results. Make sure we're reaching the right people. And I think that that's really important as well. And as technology continues to evolve, uh, you know, that's something that we're going to see a lot more of. I bet in 2012 you can be some really cool stuff. In well, if target. the White House is any indication, I mean, they have, have, have really been out front in terms of using social media to bring mm -hmm. large groups of, of people together. They've done Twitter town halls, the president's right. done Facebook town halls. What, what do you think about how they're using the medium and how the, the White House is showing leadership there, or are they? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think they're doing a great job. They've got a crack team over there that uh, is doing all kinds of innovative stuff, and we've tried to meet them every step of the way, to be honest with you, when we were on the Hill and now in the business community as well. Uh, the Twitter town hall that they had, uh, it's been a few months ago now, you know, for those of you that don't know the, sort of the premise of it, they reached out to the Twitter community and said, hey, send us your best questions. They had an algorithm that they set up to determine what was really gaining popularity out in the, uh, out in the Twitter sphere. And then they had their co-founders show up and ask the president uh, a number of questions that they chose. And interestingly, it's funny, when you talk about polyoptics, I, I don't think that the optic that they were expecting was, you know, a question from the Speaker of the House, an uncomfortable question from the Speaker of the House showing up on that uh, you remember monitor that, behind Josh? him. I absolutely do. I, the picture is seared in my memory. And it's, you know, it, if you're if a president is standing in front of a, um, a high-def plasma screen, anything can come up. And a question from Speaker Boehner, I think it was, uh, after embarking on a record spending binge that has left us deeper in debt, where are the jobs? Uh, hashtag Ask Obama. And that's not my question, uh, Dan Pfeiffer. That's John Boehner's. But I think President Obama, as usual, did a pretty good job answering it. 
Sure, he's a pro, but uh, I bet if you were to ask him, you know, and, and I think it goes to the point that I think that they were legit in the way that they offered this and that, you know, he wasn't backstage picking these yep. questions, his communications team wasn't backstage picking that's these right. questions. I don't think that that slipped through by any means. So I, I definitely respect him for for uh, trusting that process. I think Adam and I talked earlier about how President Obama is beginning to find his game a little bit more in terms of his polyoptic presentation. He's in Europe at the end of this week, but before he left, he ventured out to right in front of the Francis Scott Key Bridge between D.C. and Virginia and talked about the need to uh, to follow the White House's we-can't-wait effort to do what they could without Congress, but saying that Congress still holds the key to do anything really dramatic to turn the country around. Mm-hmm. And sort of telegraphing a message directly to your old boss, Speaker Banner, he said, John, you've been debating a commemorative coin for baseball. You had legislation reaffirming that in God we trust is our motto. That's not putting back to work. I trust in God, but God wants to see us help ourselves by putting people back to work. And in a very uh, sort of new media way, the RNC struck back immediately in this story in the Los Angeles Times. Apparently, President Obama spent more time with the Chicago Bears from 1985 than Congress did debating coins. They said in a tweet. And so we we know that this is the new currency of communication, uh, but is it really advancing our discussion and our discourse? And is this what what your old boss, Speaker Boehner, wants to do, or does he want to roll up his sleeves, sit down, and have a conversation with the president? Well, I think that he's proven he wants to roll up his sleeves and have a conversation with the president. You know, with regards to this sort of gotcha game that goes on with bills on the floor or commemorations at the White House and things like that, I, I don't. I think that's been going on in different channels of media for the last 200 years. But um, and in terms of polyoptics, it's I can just imagine the conversation be at the White House behind the key bridge ceremony, which is really fascinating to me too. We're getting him literally miles away from the White House at one of the nearest bridges, so that we can have the uh, the optics that they're looking for in transportation. Hey, and when you've got to fly to Europe the, the next day, you do what you can, right? Yeah, exactly. Hey, you know we we've got to have him on a plane soon. So where's where's the nearest bridge? What's that look <laughs> we, like? We did Let's that him all the there. time in the Clinton sure. years. Yeah, That's why. But you know what? It, it it sort of it does belie this fact that to make it real and the president has done this I mean he's mm-hmm. made this point with this visual uh, and we talked about it remember out in Ohio Josh yep um, but in, in this case it was a, a fantastic picture sure the key bridge lent itself well um, it was no one broke a sweat getting over to the key bridge right, though, right? right, right. Um, we were really fortunate to have to have the capital on our side and it was interesting when I worked in when we were in the minority leaders office we found this amazing sort of hallway up to a storage area that was above Boehner's office and when you went out on it there was a rail that went around Statuary Hall where everybody sets up yeah. at the State of the Union address. And we, um, we sort of looked at each other and we're like, can we shoot video up here? We'll look at each other and we're like, well, why not? This is a beautiful shot. So we brought some lights up there. And if you go on his YouTube page right now, you'll see some of the shot. Just an amazing backdrop. And we would come across things like that all the time. And there's some very you know, sort of scripted and, and detailed rules about taping in the Capitol, even for the members and for the leadership. But we would come across spots like that uh, fairly often. It was something that we really enjoyed. That's a great little nugget. Yeah. Uh, Josh and I have spent so much time shooting uh, just about every last inch of uh, the White House, uh, which is such a small place compared to the U.S. Capitol, especially in the uh, the executive mansion, uh, which is really where you get some of those nooks and crannies, Josh. Yeah, but, you know, the, the, the Capitol, um, one of the problems there is th- all these spaces are interior, so the lighting is often the same, the color temperature is the same, and one beautiful spot sort of looks 
somewhat like the next beautiful spot. The thing about the 18 acres is you can you can get a lot of different angles and you can do a lot of outside stuff that you can't do up on Capitol Hill. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Nick, uh, when when you were up on the hill, it, it seemed to me that, that the Democratic uh, conference in the, in the U.S. House of Representatives would go out of their way to do uh, events that messaged, that had backdrops, the kind of things that uh, didn't feel like it was the same event over and over again, or the same, uh, you, you, the people didn't change, but you had a sense of what they were talking about, even with the sound down. You don't see that as much in the Republican conference, not as well executed, but there are great examples of times when you do have that. And the Pledge to America was one that you were involved with, mm -hmm. uh, right. which was right there coming on the end of the 111th Congress, mm -hmm. and was this drive, among other things, that was going to push uh, John Boehner to the speakership from the minority leader position. Yeah. Still driving their legislative priorities right now. But but talk about the polyoptics of that, because somebody got off their ass and said, we're going to have to change the playbook, you mm -hmm. know, and, and, and do this in a different way. Yeah. Uh, take us through that, because it was effective. It was well-messaged. Thanks. And it resonated. I mean, even some of it was outside, and this is completely not uh, seen a lot. Uh, right. Short sleeves rolled up, and you guys went to a factory. Tart, it was like lumber. A yeah. Tart lumber was an amazing, amazing experience, not just for the backdrop, but, but for the sort of the meaning of that location, why we were there. Uh, this was a great American success story. These were folks that were feeling the, you know, the problems that were coming down from burdensome, excessive reg regulations as business owners. Um, so it resonated really well. I feel like with the, you know, with the folks that saw it and and with the members that wanted to go out there and participate in it. So, um, you know, I thought that that was something that worked out really well for us. You must be keeping a close eye as we look forward to 2012 about how the various Republican candidates are either. Ex exploiting uh, social media, doing it really well, or not really there. It was definitely my view in 2008 that uh, Obama completely outclassed Senator Clinton's campaign on the social media front, and Senator McCain's campaign didn't even get started. I mean, it may not, it may never have gotten started throughout 2008, and this was one of the main reasons why Senator Obama was uh, had such a dominance in the social media front in 2008. Do you think it's going to be a level playing field going forward, and who do you think's uh, sort of out front so far in terms of leveraging social media? It's hard to say right now. You know, it's a question you get quite a bit. I think that as the, the herd thins out a little bit and their pockets get deeper, you're going to see some real innovation start in the campaigns. Right now, uh, I don't want to say social is an afterthought because you get what's become almost an obligatory you know, we're announcing via YouTube, we're announcing via Twitter. I think we're running out of platforms to announce on now for it to be a story. But um, as it ramps up next year, I think that you're going to see some really, really interesting strategies that have to do with whether it's online ads and the way that they're engaging, um, you know, voters to get their opinion on the issues and to, and to actually work them into the campaign. I think that you're going to see a lot from the field teams that are going to change greatly too. Uh, mobile technology is going to change the the field game a great deal, in my opinion, from being able to track donations and door knockers that are going. You know, with you know, we can send them out with maps of, you know, undecideds and everything else laid on top of each other, so they know where they're going. Being able to track those teams, money they're raising, and provide them with materials to make them successful out in the field, I think, is going to be a, a huge uh, advantage and something that's still evolving right now. Um, the frontrunners, I think, I do are doing a real serviceable job right now. Like I said, social is kind of supporting their message, really, than other than having its own.
feel to it just yet, but you're going to see that change a lot in the next six months or so. Did you? Uh, what was your take? And I know that it, the recent news about uh, uh, Herman Cain's sexual harassment uh, allegations have totally dwarfed this, but Adam and I were having such fun last the week uh, singing the Herman Cain theme song through his his YouTube ad. But I am a man. I, I am. But what was? <laughs> Anything about that that sort of took you by shock? The Mark Block and and the different angles that he was he was shot at. The fact that he smoked, uh, the fact that it was a sort of non-message, but it was right. consumed by the media as the Herman Cain ad. I mean, this is so far away from Hal Reiney's warning in America uh, oh, in yeah. terms of artistry, but yet it's still called an ad and it still gets a couple million hits. Million and a half now. Yeah, unfortunately, I. I kind of refer to it as this this weirdness arms race that's going on with web video and politics right now. I'm not sure if that's ever going to level off, but between Demon Sheep and and some of the other videos that we've seen, you know, I'm not sure if they're moving the needle, but they're you know they're sure as heck raising awareness of the candidate and what he's doing online. So yeah, none of that was unintentional. I, I would venture a guess. I don't I don't know Mr. Kane's staff, but I would guess that you know that we're, you know. The production team sitting around in a room, and it's like, well, Block smokes. Why don't we? Why don't we have him take a drag off that cigarette <laughs> at the end of it? You know, people are going to talk about that. See, as a producer, yeah. I think yeah. it happened either the way you just uh, explained it, or, yeah. or it just they were out there uh, shooting this thing, smoking. and he happened to have a cigarette, and they just kept the tape and they cut it, and it just happened that way. But, but you, I don't think they ever thought of it as an ad. It was let's try and do sixty seconds of YouTube, and the media called it an ad. That's a very yeah. good point. It, it's a great point. I think that line's blurring greatly. I mean, you know, the things that are coming out of the official side now. I think you know when you'll see them brought up on on cable news. They're like, oh, this new ad from, you know, the Minority Leaders Office. This new ad from U.S. Chamber. This new ad from, you know, X Y Z Group. And um, yeah, the, the lexicon of sort of what's ads and what's not. I think that line's getting blurred quite a bit. You know, when I was at ABC News, that would always be the qualifier. Well, how much money are they putting behind the buy? Where is it That's airing? Right. Right. And that was the qualifier. If you couldn't call it an ad, and then yeah. you have to get it in on, you know, beta, or maybe someone's <laughs> going to send you a DVD of it. Uh, but but this is a whole new ball game right. where there's just it's not a blurred line. It's gone. Right. Right. You right. Know, somebody calls it an ad, and then everyone calls it an ad. Josh. That's right. I mean, that's a, such an important point about the buy. The buy on this Mark Block ad was probably zero. Literally hundreds of dollars were spent on that. <laughs> you know what? Uh, but as a as a dire- executive director of digital strategic communication, you know, I work in strategic communication, so I have a sense of what that is. But I think mm-hmm. for folks who are listening to us on Polyoptics and they're saying, "Okay, Nick Shaper, he's a he's a he's a big guy in D.C. and he's a communicator." Where is the nexus between strategic communication and the digital element of it? Because right. this is that's your sweet spot. Yeah, sure. And I, to be honest with you, I think that's another line that's blurring a great deal. I, I'd like to think that we're working ourselves out of a job a little bit as directors of new media and you know tech-specific communicators. I think that there are going to be modern communicators in the next 20 years. That's uh, already happening. You talk about Politico and Twitter, how important you know microblogging is to the media community. Uh, these are skills that reporters, that producers, that communicators on the hill and off uh, need to have and are increasingly all of them have. Um, you know, this is, this is not something that's going to be specific to uh, executive directors of digital strategic communications any longer, I don't think. You but, had no idea, I bet, when you were coming up that this is where you were going to be at this point in your career. Is that right? 
Yeah, you know, the, it's interesting. Like I said, it's it's uh, when I got here, it really was a, a great time for somebody that studied computer science and studied political science. I no, I didn't think that I'd be able to go to work and and in some way, shape, or form, use both of them every day. So it's it's really a dream come true, and it's a great town to do it in. And the extent that the Hill and downtown and others have, you know, taken to digital, it, it's really. Uh, it's really exciting for me personally, and it's something that you know get up and love to do every day. So, no, to answer your question, I don't think I did. You know, we had uh, this fellow Arun Chaudhry on, uh, who was Barack Obama's uh, videographer, in mm-hmm. the same way that he has an official photographer, um, and in adding to the people's understanding of the presidency itself and this president Barack Obama, the role that he played and the job that he did. Uh, I will tell you, humbly, was phenomenal. He took over the mantle that uh, we picked up from Josh and his team, and and uh, he's pushed it forward. They've really innovated. A lot of this stuff is out there uh, on the White House Flickr feed and mm-hmm. on YouTube and, and within some of the produced materials that the White House has done. Being innovative means taking chances, though. Sure. Um, and it means taking risks. And I guess I wonder at the at the sort of advocacy uh, level, especially with the the reputation and the resources of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, how risk averse are the people that you're dealing with there? I mean, you've got Tom Donahue at the top and some amazing leadership who have uh, a great deal of respect. Sure. Uh, but at some point, you have to to make it fresh and keep it new. Yeah. You don't necessarily need to have Donahue having a cigarette outside. But no. but the point is that you've got to take some bold steps in a new direction. Absolutely. Are you able to do that? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I would make a huge distinction between taking smart risks and taking dumb risks, frankly. And, and, you know, smart people and good teams, I think, take smart, calculated risks where they've done their research and they they have a a good feeling about the direction that they're going. There's always going to be a certain amount of unknown in that. But I think that, um, you know, I think we've got a team that, that, you know, knows when to take those risks. Anything specific that you guys are doing or things you're about to sort of implement as we go into, you know, the the heightened cacophony of, of political discourse around the 2012 campaign? Are you looking at 2012 and saying, you know, these are areas that we're really going to sort of strike out in? Yeah, you know, I think that we're always looking to improve the amount of communication that we have between our member businesses and us. I think we're always looking to highlight... Uh, what small businesses that are members of the chamber are doing, the problems that they're going through. We're asking for, you know, we've talked about things like uh, video submissions, content from uh, the folks that are a part of the chamber and those that are affected by what we do. You'll see a lot of those stories on uh, on the websites that we run on, um, you know, places like, um, you know, Friends of the U.S. Chamber and Small Business Nation and some, uh, some of the efforts run by our political operation. Uh, there was a lot of that done during the the 2010 campaign, and I imagine you'll see um, you'll see more this year. But generally, you know, you look for us to uh, to continue to sort of push the envelope on how we're getting our message out, particularly in advocacy to the Hill. You know, just about everything that we do now in terms of um, reaching out to the Hill is going to include you know, addressing members in different places like you know their social platforms, not just emailing the Hill, not just sending letters anymore like we've seen for so many years now. You're going to see that continue to expand as, as they have different ways they want to receive information. Well, you can find him on the Twitters, uh, at Nick Shaper. That's N-I-C-K-N-C-H-A-P-E-R. And uh, you should check out at the U.S. Chamber while you're out there as well. We appreciate you uh, coming on and being on Polyoptics. Thanks very much, Adam. I appreciate it. Thanks. Take care, Josh.
It is one of my favorite things every week to join you here on Polyoptics. 33 episodes in the can and a commitment from the leadership here at POTUS and Sirius XM to keep this experiment, this examination of the theater of politics in Washington and visual communications alive all the way through the coming election. You can find us every week at Sirius XM 124, POTUS, Politics of the United States. You can also find us online at uh, polyoptics.com and join the conversation on Facebook. Be with us next week as we always pick up the polyoptics flag only on Pugs.